The West Coast Traveler is an adventure in itself with content created by professional journalists and amazing photos provided by our readers. WestCoastTraveler.com is the newest travel network exploring all corners of Western Canada and the U.S. You'll see stunning photos and videos, read engaging travel features from around Western Canada and the U.S. Experience all the West Coast has to offer. Begin planning your next adventure. Visit WestCoastTraveler.com. One of the challenges that I think is going to be hard to do is to actually have a very rational, critical look at what was done, not defensively, not in an attempt to justify the actions taken, but meaningfully and humbly reviewing what worked, what didn't work, what was critical and beneficial, what probably wasn't necessary and did harm, to make sure that we have an educated and learned response next time. And I think we need to do that globally. I think one of the challenges is that the conversation has become increasingly polarized. There's a lot of relatively simplistic solutions shouted across ideological lines. And so I think that's a real challenge. That's Dr. Reka Gustafson, the Chief Medical Officer for Vancouver Island and the former Medical Health Officer for the City of Vancouver. On this edition of Today in BC, we'll talk about COVID, the flu, current immunization plans and long-term effects of COVID. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gustafson. It's my pleasure. I'd like to thank you for returning to the podcast to update some of the thoughts on health and wellness questions of the day. After a couple of years of small bubbles and, well, maybe three years of small bubbles and not shaking hands and hugging, how was the cold flu and RSV season this past winter and early spring across the province? Was it about what we thought it would be? The RSV and influenza seasons were both unusual, so not like the seasonal influenza that we normally see, but it is actually what we expected. In fact, fairly early on in the pandemic, there were predictions being made about what would respiratory seasons look like once we return to normal activities. And as anticipated, we had an influenza season that was a very sharp and early spike with some significant impact on our healthcare system for a while. And we couldn't anticipate that from a couple of reasons. It's actually very similar to what was seen in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere, which tends to precede our influenza season because they get winter before us. And so we had good indication that we're likely to have a potentially early and sharp peak in influenza, and we certainly had that. We also saw quite a bit of RSV. One of the things that we think contributed to that is RSV is a significant infection in very young babies and young children. We had children who didn't have the normal interactions with other people and therefore didn't get exposed to the infections that they would normally get exposed to. So I would say that the respiratory season was unusual, if you want to describe it as compared to, say, the previous five to 10 seasons, but it was predictable that it would be unusual. On top of all of that, it was complicated, of course, by the shortages of over-the-counter ibuprofen and aspirins and those home treatments. Absolutely. Not so much that it complicated the respiratory season, but when you're a parent of a young child who has a fever and you don't have the tools available to you to manage their symptoms, you're more likely to seek health care. So I think that did contribute to potentially more people coming to the emergency department at a time when emergency departments were quite busy. 
So I think one of the things that we saw was a lot of conversation about what the experience was like for people. And the experience was that it was a busy respiratory season that affected the healthcare system sufficiently that really patients noticed it and felt it. Recently, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has officially downgraded the COVID pandemic, declaring it's no longer a global emergency, as the number of cases and the hospitalizations and the deaths has been mostly stable the past few months. Could you define stable for us? Well, I think that's a really good question. So stable means that we aren't seeing very, very large spikes in hospitalizations or serious illnesses driven by coronavirus infections. One of the things that I think can be a little bit confusing for people is that on websites and on dashboards, you will see a fair number of people in hospital with COVID. But it is important to remember that, especially when in hospital, people tend to be more likely to be tested. What you're really seeing today is a lot of people in hospital with COVID, not in hospital for COVID. So what you're seeing in the hospitalization numbers is really just a reflection of what's happening in the community. But where we are today due to high rates of immunization, high rates of hybrid immunity, because many, many people have had a previous infection, and we know that hybrid immunity from vaccination and from infection provides good protection against serious illness, and due to changes in the virus itself, coronavirus infections or COVID-19 infections are no longer causing those unusual waves of serious illness that they were before. And that's what stable means. Are we going to have increases and decreases of respiratory infection due to COVID-19? We expect so, because we see that with every established respiratory virus, but it's not causing the kind of pressure on our healthcare system that would induce anybody to put other important things on hold. And I think that's the really key part in the declaration of the WHO, which is that it's no longer a global health emergency, What that declaration really meant is that for years, countries prioritized preventing COVID above other things that were important for the health and well-being of the population. It's no longer the case. Are we going to be dealing with COVID-19? Yes, we are. We deal with influenza. We deal with RSV. But we also really need to make sure that we return to full education, full participation in society, connecting with our families, connecting with our friends, because every one of those things is critical for health. So when do we need a mask? As you know, mask mandates have been lifted, which means that in usual daily activities and the general interactions in healthcare, masks are no longer required. What we do know in healthcare is that properly worn masks in very specific healthcare settings are part of the armamentarium of infection control. And healthcare workers are returning to what we used to say point of care risk assessment, where people look at the likelihood of transmission of a pathogen and use an appropriate mask or respirator if needed. In everyday life, what happened in British Columbia is that mask mandates remained in place until a full experience with a respiratory season with return to normal activities. So once they were lifted, we actually have quite a lot of experience with that respiratory season. What this means is that masks are no longer required in everyday life. There are certain situations, very limited situations, where a person may wish to wear a mask. 
probably the most effective thing to do is that if you yourself have a respiratory infection and you need to be in close proximity with someone who's both vulnerable and with whom you have a relatively limited time that you're spending with them so you're not living with them, then probably wearing a mask for the person who has symptoms has some additional benefit. So if you are visiting someone who's elderly or frail and they don't see a lot of people and you're one of the people that they see and you need to see them while you have symptoms, for that interaction, putting a mask on is probably of some benefit. You mentioned the various websites and dashboards where folks can see how many cases are active. I was looking at that a couple of weeks ago and noted that there was more than 34,000 people in the province in hospital since 2020 with COVID. That must, as you said, put a tremendous strain on the province's medical system. Early on, when people were being admitted to hospital for COVID, in other words, for serious infection due to coronavirus, then COVID infection itself was putting a lot of strain on the healthcare system. The numbers today mean something else. The numbers today is really a measurement of what's happening in the community and therefore what's showing up in the hospital. At the moment, the drivers of the stresses on the healthcare system is not COVID-19 infection. So I would say that it changed substantially. It was a period of time at the beginning when there were high number of coronavirus infections, but because of a lot of the activities that were stopped, much of our hospitals actually had less of a stress on them from other things because people weren't coming to the hospital for other things. There were periods of time where specific hospitals or specific emergency departments had very, very high numbers of cases, specific ICUs had very high number of cases early on in the pandemic. The numbers today don't mean the same thing. What are some of the most common misconceptions about COVID-19 that you've run across? I think one of the most common misconceptions is a lack of appreciation of how much this infection has changed. I would say that there is a number of behaviors that people have adopted during the pandemic. And I think there is a misconception that it would be of benefit to continue those. And it's not. It was a different situation. And the measures that we took were intended for a period of time. That period of time has now passed. And like with every intervention, the things that we did for the pandemic, masks, reducing social contacts, limiting gatherings, all of those had actual significant harmful side effects to society. I would say one of the biggest misconceptions is that if you care about health, you will continue to do COVID-related restrictions. No, if you care about health, it is really important to know that things have changed and it is now time to prioritize other preventive care, education, social interactions, looking after people who are experiencing inequities, and of course, our overdose crisis. So I think that would be, for me, the single biggest one. When Today in BC continues, Dr. Reka Gustafson talks COVID-19 and mental health. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. 
I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Some of us now have five shots for COVID vaccinations, doctor. What are the differences between the various vaccines that are available in the mix and how effective are they in preventing the spread of the virus? And are we getting another shot this fall, do you think? Really great question. So like with everything with the pandemic, the types of vaccines and the effect of vaccines has changed. When vaccines first came out, their primary purpose was to make sure that the population got an initial immune response, initial immunity to the virus. The reason COVID-19 was such a serious issue was because it was a new virus. That means that every single person on the globe was universally susceptible to this virus. That's different from RSV. That's different from other coronaviruses. It's different from influenza. Most of us are infected with these viruses at different periods of our time. When we're born, we're exposed to a number of respiratory viruses. Most of us weather them quite well. Some people get quite sick, but there isn't a period of time when everybody could potentially get sick all at once. And so the reason COVID-19 had such an impact was because it had a potential of lots of people getting quite sick all at once. And the reason that was is because it was new and there was an entire population of people who never met this virus. There had no baseline immunity. The initial two doses of the vaccine that we all got starting in December 2020, January 2021, was to give us that baseline immunity to prevent serious infection. Those two doses actually continue to do that. The first booster really does complete that series for you. Two things happened since then. We now know that the initial vaccination is actually quite effective at preventing serious illness. Those initial vaccinations for the first few months, because they were also quite effective at preventing infection, also reduced spread. The virus has changed and the vaccines have changed. The virus has become a lot more infectious. What we find is that the booster doses give you a brief period of time of boosting. Now that we've had both the virus and the vaccines around for a while, we know that there's quite a rapid waning against protection after you had your booster. So the boosters now are really aiming to provide a relatively time-limited protection against serious illness and infection for those who are at the highest risk of serious illness. So really, it's people in their eighth and ninth decades, as well as people who are immune compromised and some other indigenous communities. They really are giving people this boost because the virus has changed. We've all become familiar with the word variants. The new vaccines are designed to provide more specific protection against some of the variants as they are circulating. One of the results of the small bubbles and not having the social interaction that we talked about that we're used to because of COVID was the emergence of mental health issues really came to the forefront. And when we chatted last, you were tagged to lead the recovery response. Perhaps you could update us on that. Well, you know, this is one of the things that I probably worry the most about. In a lot of our conversation, we're talking about the mental health consequences. And I think our education systems and our on-the-ground programs are really addressing that need. I do worry, are we doing enough? I worry about that because other things have emerged to take the place of the pandemic. One of the things, of course, is the overdose crisis. 
The overdose crisis is so acute and so significant, and we have to scale up a population-level response. Our staffing shortages in our healthcare services and in every service that we have are really, really acute and significant. I still say that recovery is an active part of the pandemic response. I certainly see efforts to make sure that there is intentional recovery, but I do worry whether they're system-wide enough, certainly in an exhausted healthcare system and a number of institutions that are sort of short-staffed. I think it is a challenge. What I would say is, and I really appreciate the question, keeping it in the forefront and making sure that we're intentional about it and continue to recognize that the experience that our children and our young people in particular have had is very, very different from the five years before. And we need to make sure that we make space for that. We also know that many of our elderly individuals for whom remaining in contact with their network is absolutely critical for their health, we need to reconnect with them. You mentioned healthcare workers and the amount of work that's been done over the last three years and other essential personnel, of course, who have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. What measures are being taken to support them? It seems to me that one acute issue has been replaced by another. I think certainly there's been very strong and significant efforts on parts of government to make sure that healthcare workers are recognized and officially compensated. There's programs for healthcare workers for stress. Um, One of the things that's a challenge is that stress really has been population-wide, which means that a specific program or a specific support for a small group of people isn't necessarily going to make a difference. I think what's really important is the recognition that it has occurred and that we recognize the needs that people have in order to be around their families. Some of the things that I think are truly population-wide interventions are embracing flexible work, ensuring that people actually get to limit some of the stresses associated with commuting when they can, and a lot of support through the healthcare system. There's potential long-term health impacts from COVID, and I'm wondering What research has been done on the topic so far that you might know about? I've read about breathing problems, ongoing fatigue, increased tinnitus, and being susceptible to other viruses, just to name a few. That was a really important conversation that emerged during the pandemic, which is people who have symptoms for several weeks or months after COVID. And one of the areas of research was, is this different from other respiratory viruses? Or are we seeing more of it because, again, everybody's getting infected all at once or in a very, very short period of time? My latest understanding of the research is that a big proportion of what we saw was us seeing what happens with respiratory viruses. And we know that these kind of prolonged symptoms happen with respiratory viruses. There's also a post-ICU syndrome. So if you're going to be in intensive care unit, there's significant lung damage and there's mental health consequences. And then some proportion of these symptoms are thought to be unique to COVID-19. Again, my reading of the research is that the vast majority of interventions are related to managing the symptoms that people have. If it's breathing symptoms, if it's fatigue, then it's gradual return to work our gradual return to activity. So really, it's quite similar to the other treatments that have been provided to people who experience prolonged symptoms following a respiratory illness, which may have been mild or may have been significant. 
What challenges ahead do you anticipate as COVID kind of hangs around? It's probably with us forever now as a regular Mm -hmm. fall type of an event. And what steps could be taken to address the challenges, do you think? To me, there's sort of two things that are important. One is we need to take the opportunity to learn from COVID-19 because we did learn a great deal. We have not watched the emergence of a brand new virus with the kind of virology and, and genomics tools that we've had. So we've learned a great deal about how a new virus emerges, how it adapts to the population, how the population adapts to it. And I think it would be really important that we use that information to help us understand how to respond. The other thing that I think is one of the biggest challenges is to have a really critical look at how we responded. I worry that we have a little bit of a tendency to avoid a critical look at what was done because the things that were done were so broad and had such enormous impacts. One of the challenges that I think is going to be hard to do is to actually have a very rational, critical look at what was done, not defensively, not in an attempt to justify the actions taken, but meaningfully and humbly reviewing what worked, what didn't work, what was critical and beneficial, what probably wasn't necessary and did harm, to make sure that we have an educated and learned response next time. And I think we need to do that globally. I think one of the challenges is that the conversation has become increasingly polarized. There's a lot of relatively simplistic solutions shouted across ideological lines. And so I think that's a real challenge. The other real challenge is I think there has been some loss of faith in science, and I worry about that. I hope that we can return to a place of evidence-based decision-making where science is part of that decision-making, but we also learn again, humbly about how to make sure that we involve people who are going to be affected by our decisions in those decisions. To me, those are some of the biggest challenges. I'd like to thank Dr. Reka Gustafson for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com.